return to Mark's gospel this morning, and I invite you to turn to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14, as we look at verses 32 to 42. Mark 14, verses 32 to 42 is our text this morning, and it's a familiar scene to us, described by one man as one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. And I want you to recall, it's been several weeks, what has just taken place. And so if you uh, look, maybe turn back perhaps in Mark 14, and you see that Jesus has celebrated the Passover with his disciples. They're in Jerusalem. It's the time of the Passover. And in an upper room there in the city of Jerusalem, they celebrate a final meal, a Passover meal, And that's where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And they've left there and they've gone to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus has predicted not just Peter's denial, but that in fact all of them would be scattered. They would be made to stumble because of him that night. And of course, Peter had vehemently said that he would never deny Christ. That's the background here as we come to the Garden of of Gethsemane on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. It's just outside the city. Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples. Judas has departed from them and we will see him soon coming to meet Jesus to betray him. But Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples there on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, they've come to a place, Mark says. We know from John 18 that it was a garden And the name itself, Gethsemane, means olive press. Perhaps it was an olive orchard then. We know that Jesus often met here with his disciples. Again, John tells us that, and Judas knew exactly the place. It's from this place that Jesus will be taken away, that Jesus will be put on trial and crucified, and all in a matter of hours. As in the words of Jesus himself in our text, the hour... The appointed hour has finally come. So let's read Mark 14, beginning at verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. 
Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray again and ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, uh, you know perfectly well and we know that though you have made our spirits willing, very often the flesh is weak and we feel that many of us this morning and would ask for your help to strengthen us. And we would ask for your Holy Spirit to help us as we come to this text to give us understanding and to shed light upon it. Lord, that we would come and see Jesus this morning, that our love for him would be stirred up in our praise and our thanksgiving as we behold Christ in the garden. We ask that he would be exalted this morning, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. There are many things in life that are simply too wonderful and too mysterious for us to wrap our minds around, to comprehend. And this is true even in the creation. Who can comprehend the vastness of the heavens, of the universe? Last night, the stars were particularly clear, at least at my house. And you look up and who can comprehend these things, or, or the depths of the seas and the countless creatures that are there in the, in the oceans and the seas of this world. Many of them we don't even know about. Who can comprehend things that are even in this created order? Or to use the words of the wise man in Proverbs 30, such things as the way of an eagle in the air. He said, these things are too wonderful. A serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and of a man with a young woman. There's many things too wonderful for us to comprehend. And how much more wonderful and incomprehensible when we're considering the ways of God or thinking about the being of the creator and sustainer of all things. Now, as we come to this text here in Mark 14, we're faced with things that are far beyond our grasp. And not just intellectually, that's certainly true. But if we can use this language, there's things here that are beyond our grasp emotionally that we can't even begin to enter into. As we see Jesus here, In the garden, as we see one person of the Trinity, the eternal son, speaking to another person of the Trinity, the father, and even pouring out his heart to the father. Being in agony as he comes to the beginning of the end, to the final acts of his obedience and to his great suffering and death. There's things incomprehensible that no amount of study and meditation will be able, will never be able to get to the bottom of it. What we have here is a rare view into the inner life of the Son of God. A rare view, a window into Christ's inner life at his most critical hour of his time on earth. And this morning, we really just want to dip our toe into this vast ocean, and consider two aspects 
two aspects of Jesus' life into which we here have a window, and that's first his emotional life as a true man, as we see him in agony, and then also his absolute determination to do, to submit to the will of his Father. So those two things we get a window into in this text, and that's what I want us to focus on tonight, and we'll come to some other matters in this text, Lord willing, in other weeks. So I want us first to consider the emotional life of Christ, and particular as we see it here, the grief, the anguish. And now that might make you uncomfortable to speak of Christ as having an emotional life. But if he were presented to us as an emotionless being in the Gospels, we might seriously question his true humanity, would we not? If he just appeared to be an automaton, if he had no emotions and he was just always flat, when he saw people in need, he wasn't stirred to compassion. Or as he's coming to finish his work, as he's coming to the cross, he was just emotionless. We would question, rightly so, his true humanity. We've considered this before several times, actually, in the Gospel of Mark. One man has put it well. He says, it belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that he was subject to all sinless human emotions. This belongs to his true humanity. In all things, we read in the scriptures, in all things, sin accepted, he had to be made like his brethren, made like us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, Hebrews 2.17. He had to be made like us. He's a true man, flesh and blood, but also emotions, real emotions, sinless, but real. So the point I want to make here as we begin this first point is that if we deny the emotional life of Christ, it's tantamount to denying that he came in the flesh. And to deny that Christ came in the flesh is really to deny the gospel, to deny that we have a savior. Now, compassion is the emotion that is most often attributed to Christ in the gospels, stirred to compassion, sees the crowds, he sees their need, he's moved to compassion, and he acts. He takes action, feeding, teaching, whatever it might be. But also we see love, we see joy in Christ. We see anger. And as we see here in our text, we see sorrow, deep sorrow even, and grief in the Son of God. We rightly apply the name man of sorrows to Christ. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, 3. The servant of the Lord that rightly is applied to Christ. But it would be wrong. From that to conclude that Jesus was always gloomy, that he went about this life as a man of sorrows, as a gloomy man. That's not true. That's not the picture that we get in the Gospels. But it's here in the garden, and of course at the cross, just in a matter of hours, but here in the garden and at the cross where we see the Son of God, and we see him here sounding the ultimate depths of human anguish, as one person puts it, it's here that he really earns the title man of sorrows. 
And just as we can't comprehend the person of Christ, the God-man, two natures joined in one person forever, just as we can't comprehend that, we can't get our minds around that mystery, so we can't begin to understand the depths of anguish that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane in his final hours. Now, we might grow in our understanding. If God gives us more and more years, we are sure to suffer in this life more and more. And as we suffer, we can grow in our understanding of the sufferings of Christ. That's true. But who can really step into the shoes of Christ here? Who can really understand the depths of anguish of our Savior at this time in his life as he's going to complete the work that he's been given to do, the redemptive work? It's absolutely unique. The language that's used to describe his mental sufferings here, and he uses the language even himself, it's very strong. Let's read it again, beginning at verse 32, just on to verse 34. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. He took them with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Now, you get the impression that even as Jesus is being stretched to his limit, that human language is being stretched to the limit in trying to describe this agony that Christ was going through at this time, the intense agony. And that's the word Luke uses. If you look to Luke 22, he uses the word agony. Jesus was in agony in the garden. And by his own admission... Jesus says that he's not just sorrowful, but he's exceedingly sorrowful. A strong word, a word that indicates, in the words of one man, to shut in by distress on every side. Jesus is saying, I'm so sorrowful, it's, it's just engulfing me, this sorrow that I am feeling at this time. And he says that it was unto death, and that might indicate that it's a depth of sorrow which threatened life itself. Luke, in his parallel account, Luke was a physician, so we're not surprised that he adds this little interesting detail. He records for us that his agony was so great that not only was he sweating profusely, but that there was blood mixed with his sweat. And that actually is a rare medical condition. You can look it up. It's possible, too, that we could understand Luke when he's saying that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It is possible that that's used metaphorically, but either way, the impression is the same, that Jesus is in great distress mentally and even physically. We ask this question, why would Jesus, the Son of God, be so greatly distressed and troubled at this time? Has he just now come to realize what his obedience would cost him? The answer to that is no. He's gone to Jerusalem with full knowledge of what awaited him. You know he's predicted several times 
what must happen according to the scriptures. He knew that he would be handed over. He knew he would suffer many things. He knew he would have to die. So all of this he knows as he's going to Jerusalem. So it's not like he's now caught off guard and finally understands what is involved in completing the work that God has given him to do. That's not how we should understand this. The cup that he now speaks of in verse 36, take this cup away from him, he knows that he must drink it. So looking back to chapter 10 of Mark in verse 38, he says, are you, James and John speaking to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? So he knew that he had a cup, he had a baptism. Luke 12, 50, Jesus is saying, I have a baptism to be baptized with. He's speaking there of his final sufferings and death. And he says, how distressed I am till it is accomplished. So there is, to quote a man, a burden of anticipated anguish, which our Lord bore throughout life. So as as he is going throughout his life, he's ministering to many. He, he knows the cross is coming, and there's this burden of anticipated anguish that he bore. And now in the final hours, it's heightened and intensified. The pressure upon his soul is greatly intensified. And I think that any woman who has given birth will understand this, at least to some extent, as they're anticipating that day, and then the day finally comes. And there's a new intensity. Not that they didn't know that they were going to have to go through labor. So that gives us maybe something of an idea of this anticipated anguish that Christ had. And now it's more intense in the garden. So he's drawing near the cross. And as he does so, he's recoiling. He is recoiling at the horror of the death that awaits him. And you see that clearly in verse 35, when we read that he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And then from his own lips, we have him praying, and they probably would have overheard this, the three that Jesus brought near. As he's praying there on his face, take this cup away from him. He's recoiling at the horror of what awaits him. We would not be wrong to speak, as Calvin does, of an awful and dreadful torture endured by Jesus in Gethsemane. An awful and dreadful torture. But what exactly was it that so greatly tormented Christ? Was it just the thought of the cruel and painful death that awaited him? Was it just as he thought about the crucifixion? that he was distressed. The fact of crucifixion and how cruel it is and how humiliating it was and how painful it was. Was this it? Is this what brought about this exceeding sorrow and agony or is there something more? And I want to submit to you that the words of his prayer give us an important clue to the real horror that Jesus faced here in Gethsemane. Look again at verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup 
said Jesus, away from me. This cup, and that is a cup, not just of suffering in general, but a cup of judgment and even of divine wrath. It's a familiar picture from the Old Testament, this cup of God's judgment and wrath. Jesus says, take this cup from me. And note, it's a cup that the Father has given him. He has given him this cup. So it's the Father's to take away or not to take away. And we know, in fact, he spared not his own son, Romans 8.32. He spared him not. So that which causes Christ to recoil in horror is specifically the drinking of the cup of judgment, the drinking of the cup of God's wrath against sin, the cup that we deserve to drink. So for Jesus, the horror of the cross isn't so much the physical pain, isn't so much the humiliation of the cross, but its redemptive significance. It's redemptive significance that on the tree, he himself would be bearing our sins as he's hanging on the cross, bearing our sins in his own body, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, in your place, condemned he stood as we just sung. All we like sheep, we read in Isaiah 53, which is about Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So if we don't grasp this, we can't begin to understand Gethsemane. If we don't grasp what it is that caused such revulsion in Christ and such grief and sorrow at this point, the cup that he must drink, then we're not going to understand what we read here. Jesus began to be troubled, we read, and deeply distressed. And that was because in a matter of hours, he would feel himself utterly forsaken. Not that he would be utterly forsaken. He would feel himself in his soul utterly forsaken by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's his cry as he's drinking the bitter cup, our cup, upon the cross as he's drinking it to its dregs. So here in the garden, Jesus is, again to quote Calvin, Jesus is conscious of standing at the tribunal of God. In other words, he's conscious of coming to God's court and standing before God, arraigned or charged on our account. That's what's happening here. It's not just somebody going and dying a death on a Roman cross. It's the Son of God coming, standing before God, and being charged because of our sins, and then bearing our penalty in our place. It's not possible for us to comprehend how awful and terrible is the wrath of God, the holy wrath of God against sin. That's part of why this is so incomprehensible to us because we really can't grasp just how sinful sin is in the sight of God because we can't comprehend who God is in his holiness and in his purity. 
But it's this wrath of God that's about to be poured out on Christ. It's about to fall on Jesus, the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased and certainly well pleased as he's hanging on the cross. So it's certainly on our account because of our sins that that wrath is poured out. That's what Jesus is so grieved and troubled about. So there's fuel here, endless fuel, really, for our meditation, for our praise, for our thanksgiving. As we try to take in this scene of Christ agonizing in the garden, moving closer to the cross, what we learn here is just how costly our salvation was for the Son of God, just how costly it was for him to obey the Father, even to the point of death, the death of the cross. So if it helps to think of it in these simple terms, Christ's obedience for us was anything but easy. So we need to get that out of our minds. Christ going to the cross, Christ in the garden and then being taken by lawless hands and going, standing before the courts and being mocked and all of these things and ultimately going to the cross, none of this was easy for him because he was the son of God. That's far from the picture that we have here. We might be tempted to think that. We say, well, he's fully God. He's holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. So laying down his life, we might be tempted to conclude, was an easy thing for him. But that's shattered by this scene, that notion is, by Gethsemane. This is real. This isn't fake. This isn't acting. This is real anguish and grief. It costs Jesus more than we can ever comprehend to redeem us to set us free from our bondage. It cost him more than we can ever know. Obedience is never easy. That in itself is a good point to take to heart this morning. Obedience is never easy, so don't expect it to be. There's always some cost, sometimes more, but it's never easy. And it wasn't easy for Christ. And especially those final acts of obedience of Christ were not easy. Our love for Christ is never what it should be. Our love for Christ is like a fire. It needs to be stoked. It needs to be fueled. It needs to be fanned. And it's these types of things that we ought to meditate on. And I mean really meditate. Think about these things. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But I'm trying to bring it before our attention again because God does. And to say, let's think about these things and consider Christ, his person and his work. But in particular, to see his anguish and understand that was for us, that he was going through this, that he was going to the cross. We could say the same of our praise and of our thanksgiving. It's often so feeble. It's often almost lifeless. We go through the motions, perhaps of singing 
or of prayer or of coming here, of listening to sermons. We go through the motions and we need texts like this to begin ignite not just our love, but our praise and our thanksgiving to God for our salvation. As the flame of our love burns, it's surely then going to ignite greater praise and greater thanksgiving. And as we think about how much our salvation, the accomplishment of our redemption, cost Christ, will we not be all the more thankful and offer up more ardent praise to God? Now, if somebody serves you, either in a small way or a large way, you're thankful, right? At least we should be. Some small act of kindness or some great act of kindness, we're thankful if someone does that. Somebody brings you a meal, for example, you appreciate it. And not just their concern that they're thinking about you, but you appreciate what it costs them in regard to their time and to their energy and their resources. But if somebody serves you in an exceptional way and you see how greatly they've poured themselves out, how much they've sacrificed of time, energy, of themselves, of resources, are you not moved all the more and are thankful and sometimes even in awe that somebody would be so kind and so generous to you? Well, that's how we should think of this. Meditate on this. Look at this and say, this was for me. This is real. Jesus is going through all of this. The greatest act of love. He's laying down his life. Consider it. Let it stir up your heart and warm you to praise. Let's secondly consider the absolute determination that we see here to do the Father's will. Christ is resolute, firmly resolute, to submit to all of the Father's will. Now, there's two things here that are wonderfully and incomprehensibly brought together in this most sacred and solemn scene. And the first thing is the horror of Christ's death with its full redemptive significance, all that it means that he's bearing our sin bearing our punishment. And this brings about, in Christ, a desire for deliverance. Take this cup away from me. That's the first thing. But there's also here not just the horror of Christ's death, but this is brought together with it, the ardor, as one man says, the ardor of his obedience. So the horror of his death, the ardor of his his obedience, these two are brought together. And this ardor of his obedience is expressed in the same breath that he says, take this cup. He says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. In a mysterious way, neither of these two diminish the other. So that the horror of his death doesn't diminish the ardor of his obedience, of his desire to do the will of God. And his absolute desire to do the will of God doesn't diminish the real horror at the death that awaits him. It's mysterious. Now, if we could only fully understand how the two natures of Christ are joined in one person forever. His human nature, he's fully human, 
and his divine nature. He's fully God. If we could only understand this great mystery, perhaps a mystery of mysteries, the mystery of the incarnation, of the person of the God-man, if we could understand that, then we could understand this mystery that we see in our text. But we can't understand it. So that's why I'm saying there's something here that we can't fully grasp as Jesus is really recoiling and really saying, yet I am firmly resolute to do the Father's will. Like so many other truths revealed to us, we have to humbly accept our limitations. That's a good lesson for us as you're reading the Bible and you have questions, read in faith and read humbly and accept your limitations and be okay with mystery because there's plenty of it in the word of God. It's meant to humble us. Embrace what is revealed. Even when what is revealed involves some tension that you cannot resolve. So how is it that Christ can recoil at the prospect of his death while never once wavering in his resolve to do the Father's will? Never once. Always desiring to do all of God's will. How can he pray for the hour to pass and for the cup to be taken away from him and yet at the same time be embracing that hour and embracing that cup? You see what I'm saying? But that's what's revealed to us. On this point, John, and it's only John, gives us another window into the inner life of Christ. It's an incident that took place just a few days before this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew that the hour had come. He says that himself. The hour that he should be glorified is what he specifically says. And he means glorified through his suffering and death. He knows that that hour has finally come. And declares this, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. John 12. So revulsion at the thought of his death is at once met with resolve to glorify the Father by submitting to his will. And here's the main point. The banner over the entire life of Christ is summed up in the second part of his prayer when he says, nevertheless, not what I will, not my will, but your will be done. That's the banner over the life of Christ. Not my will, but my Father's will, he says, that be done. That is over all of his life. That's driving all that he's doing to glorify the Father by doing all of his holy will. And so I ask you this morning, is that the banner over your life? Not my will, but the will of God be done. Is that the banner over your life? Is, is that what drives you and motivates you to do the will of God? When you pray, is every request offered with these words, whether spoken or unspoken, but you pray, you have requests, you have burdens, and in your heart of hearts, though, you want God's will to be done because you trust him. 
You love him and, he, and you know that he loves you and he's your father and he cares for you and knows what's best. We may pour out our troubled hearts and we learn that here from this text and it's a comfort to us. We can pour out our troubled hearts to God. We can make our requests known to him, earnest requests for some deliverance or healing or maybe some blessing and we might really offer up our desires to God without holding back But the prayer of faith always rests upon this foundational desire that God's will in the end would be done. Now, I know that many here are troubled. Many here are weighed down by a variety of circumstances. Many here are afflicted in many different ways. Afflictions of body, afflictions of soul, trials that have come upon you and feel perhaps crushing. And I want to say, as we're thinking about this text and looking at our Lord here, that godliness does not require that we suppress our grief and our sorrow. Being like Christ doesn't mean we're stoical in the midst of suffering. Even if we understand God is sovereign and his will be done, godliness doesn't require that we suppress our tears and our emotions or even telling people that your soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Christ did that. It doesn't require that we never pray for deliverance, but it does require a submission, a submission like Christ to our Father's will. Some of you here have yet to submit to God's will, God's desire that all men and women and boys and girls would repent and believe and not perish. That's God's heart. That's his desire. He desires that all would come to faith, that all would come to Christ and have life. Some of you have not submitted to God's will in that. You hear the gospel and you've not come. You have not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. The motto of your life, by and large, whether you realize it or not, I'm going to tell you this, by and large, the motto of your life is, my will be done, not God's. Think about that. It's true. That was my desire before God gave me a new heart. And everybody here will testify the same thing. It was my will. And yet God subdues our hearts and gives us a new desire and this this overarching desire in our lives for the will of God to be done. So if that's you, if if that's your desire, if you find, yes, it's true that my desire, my goal in life is to do what I want, my will, then you're still in your sins. And the wrath of God, the word of God says, is still on you. It's still on you, but it doesn't have to be because of what we see here. We're seeing our salvation worked out in the garden even. What Christ was doing in the garden and his agony there in the garden was just as much for our salvation as what we're going to see on the cross. You can't separate any of this. And so consider here Jesus agonizing in the garden, exceedingly sorrowful even to death for sinners. For sinners, submitting to the horrors of the cross so that you would not have to endure the horrors of hell. Enduring this kind of anguish so that sinners wouldn't have to go through with this 
for all eternity in hell. That's what's happening. So see what love is offered to you. This is, this is the love of Christ, and it's meant to draw you to him. So pay attention. Think about this. See what Christ willingly endured for sinners' sake. And will you continue to be unmoved and just turn away and go on saying, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to live life my way. I'll say that it takes a hard heart to reject this kind of love. But God can soften hard hearts. And I pray that God would soften every hard heart here. And more than that, would even give you a new heart. Those who have a heart of stone. God's word says he can take it right out and give you a soft heart, a heart of flesh, so that you might receive Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel and not perish, but have life. And brothers and sisters, I set before you this scene so much we can't understand, but I set it before you for your careful reflection. We clearly see the love of Christ for us here. Very clearly. As he's entering resolutely into his suffering and into his death with unimaginable anguish of soul, with unwavering determination to do the Father's will, to finish his work, to drink completely the cup of divine wrath, which is ours to drink, so that we might not perish, but have eternal life. What a savior we have. Amen. Amen. God, we thank you that we have such glorious texts that show us your son, that even give us the awesome privilege of seeing his inner life as he's working out our salvation, as he's completing the work you gave him to do. Write these things upon our hearts. Let us not forget them. And stir up our love and our praise and our thanksgiving. Pray that you would melt hard hearts this morning. Seeing the love of Christ and the agony in the garden, I pray that some here would come to Christ and be drawn with cords of love to him and receive the eternal life that he freely gives. We pray in his name. Amen.